Welcome to the Boston College Magazine podcast. I'm John Wolfson, the editor of Boston College Magazine, and I'm joined by our podcast producer, Paul Dagnello. Our guest today is going to talk about the remarkable moment we're having in our nation's history. It began as mass demonstrations against police brutality and has become the most sweeping wave of public protests since the civil rights movement of the 1960s. All across the country, from the biggest cities to the smallest towns, Americans are marching in opposition to the systemic racism that has shaped our nation since its founding. Polls show broad support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Statues of racist leaders from the past are being torn down, and organizations, institutions, and municipalities are acknowledging our racist history and promising reforms. For its part, BC recently announced the creation of the Boston College Forum on Racial Justice in America. This new project will work to study and counter the effects of racism in society. BC Law School Dean Vincent Rougeau will serve as the forum's inaugural director. He joins us today to discuss the university's new initiative and also the broader cultural and societal moment. Welcome to the podcast, Vince. Thank you. Good to be with you. This forum seems really exciting. It's really come together, presumably quickly. Perhaps there's been some stuff happening in the background all along, but I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about the forum. Sure. Well, it did come together quickly. I think it was really a response to the events uh, of the day. And, uh, you know, obviously those events uh, did not occur in isolation. There have been a lot of things that have happened in the, the years and centuries before. But I think we had reached a point here at BC where Father Leahy, members of the board, members of the administration, faculty, uh, realized that uh, you know our way of proceeding prior to this time was was insufficient, and we needed to do something to really demonstrate our commitment to the issue of anti-racism, as well as our desire to move uh, the conversation and the society forward in new ways. So, uh, what we've what we're attempting to do uh, again, it's very early days, but. Um, Basically, I've been thinking about the forum on three levels. The first level is sort of a, a kind of listening period uh, where we will try to hear from people, both within the BC law community, BC community, and uh, outside the BC community about their experiences of racism. Uh, you know, in a way where they can really speak their truths without feeling that they are involved in some sort of uh, back and forth. I mean, this is a time for us to hear from people. Uh, who are speaking very authentically to their lives in the society. What kind of people do we mean here, Vince? Who are we talking about potentially? I mean, I know we're still pulling all this together. Sure. Well, within this community, we would probably want to hear from students, faculty, and staff. You know, what? Uh, I think there are a lot of stories here that go untold right on this campus uh, that people do not feel comfortable expressing uh, or have not felt comfortable expressing for all kinds of reasons. But mm. in the current moment, uh, there's more of a willingness, I think, to hear. So hopefully that will be one step. And then I'd like to sort of use Greater Boston as a laboratory for our work, as a space for our work as members of this community and also as a wonderful metropolitan area um, to go into to hear from people from some of the communities that are most burdened by racial injustice, you know, uh, Roxbury, Mattapan, you know, Chelsea, Brockton, uh, these are places where we've seen, for instance, the COVID crisis has been most profound, and part of that is tied to racial inequality, racial inequity, racial discrimination. So uh, that would be another area where we, we would look. So that was number one, the listening part. Mm -hmm. And then um, 
The second part would be, I think, to make some judgments about how we should respond as an institution and as a community. Uh, and in that stage, I would hope that we would draw together all of the extraordinary resources we have at Boston College. Again, our faculty resources. Uh, we have a lot of people doing extraordinary work in the in these areas uh, that deal with race, uh, that are looking closely at racism in various sectors in education and law. Um, we have people working in arts and letters, arts and sciences, um, in areas like history, political science, sociology, uh, who have some really important ideas and important things to contribute. Uh, and we have our board, we have our alumni, we have uh, people on the administration and in the staff who I think have some great ideas about changes we could make internally, things we could do uh, to affect the world around us. So both, you know, a sort of internal change and a sort of external impact. Mm. And then finally, the third thing would be to actually do things, you know, uh, policy papers, uh, you know, changes here on campus to how we think about admissions, how we think about uh, the way we organize our community to make it more of an anti-racist place. I mean, to really attack racism at its root in the life of our community on campus and also in the work that we do as scholars, as faculty, as teachers, as uh, staff and as students. So sometimes forum can be used in a way to describe a one-time event or a discussion. That doesn't seem like what we're talking about here. No, I think what we're thinking about is something more transformative, more as a space for engagement and interaction, uh, but in, in an ongoing way and a place where we'll come together in different ways to, yes, have conversations, yes, to share information, but then to move on beyond that uh, and to actually act and do and change things. One of the things that strikes me as really interesting in this moment, these ongoing protests against systemic racism, particularly in our policing, they're on a scale that really the country hasn't seen since probably the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Last year, Vince, you delivered a really powerful and I think a deeply personal keynote address at BC's annual MLK scholarship ceremony. You really talked a lot about your own experiences as an African-American with race and racism in the country, given that context. Given that context and given the background and your own personal history, tell us a little bit what are your impressions of what you're seeing right now all across the country? Yeah, it's it's remarkable. It's uh, it's been you know something that's been very emotional for me to watch. Um, it's uh, I've I've had very interesting conversations with my parents who were actually in the streets during the civil rights mark, uh, marches, uh, who feel like they're having a, a flashback. Uh, and, and one that in a way is difficult for them because they didn't think that this would need to happen again. You know? But I think one of the things we're seeing is despite all of the change that's occurred uh, over the decades, something fundamental about American society, American culture has not changed. This is still a, a culture and a society deeply, deeply distorted by racism. Uh, and it manifests itself in different ways and, uh, and I think for people of color, for black people in particular, we have tried to bring this up repeatedly in different ways, um, you know, in more recent times. And there, I think there's been a sense that, yes, some people hear us, some people listen, but frankly, there's been a lot of either, um, you know, pushback, you know, okay, well, yeah, but it's not as bad. Here's some, here are the reasons why you shouldn't, you're, you're overstating the problem. Or, you know, people just haven't, been receptive or responsive. For me, watching all of this and reading about all of this, one of the things that's so startling about it is that it just didn't see it coming. 
it was just hard to imagine that we were going to have this moment right now, given that the last three and a half years or so have been in this country. And I'm wondering if there's an element of that for you as well. Well, that's a great point. You know, the leadership that we have right now in the country would seem to suggest that we're in a different kind of political moment. But I think it also bears thinking about that, you know, our system produced this particular political result, but I think it's also an indictment of the system itself. I mean, the fact that we live in a democracy that allowed an executive to assume power with, you know, less than the full popular vote, and granted, that's how the system is structured. But I think people are starting to realize too, well, you know, the system is structured in a way that's really handing power to relatively small groups of people who are not representative of what most of us think. And that's probably not a good way to organize a democracy, whatever whatever its value was, you know, in 1789 or whatever. Uh, So that's one thing. I think the other thing is there's been a lot of real distress and anger, uh, despite, you know, the apparent political moment and the, despite who's in control of the, of the government. Uh, and I think people maybe finally saw an outlet to really express their, their, their distress, um, real distress with the direction that the country is taking, um, regardless of what the political result was, there's still a cultural sense that our government, uh, our leaders, are not only unrepresentative, they, they're you know deeply unreflective of who we are as a people. Listening to that, Vince, it struck me, it's really interesting just to be able to put it in perspective, hearing you talk about racism and systemic racism in this country, and for that suddenly to not be a point of view that can be easily dismissed by certain people who don't want to hear it. I think a second piece of this, people in the streets, people of all races, all colors, all backgrounds, Suddenly that view that we don't have this problem, that view that systemic racism is not an issue in this country, suddenly that feels like it's in the minority and maybe it's almost not acceptable in polite society. No, I think that's a great point. And I wonder sometimes, you know, I've always felt that we as Americans often have had difficulty with a certain degree of self-reflection, of sort of being self-critical. It's almost like there's a a certain group in in American culture who take any kind of introspection, self-criticism of our culture as an attack. Um, and I mean, I've always thought that that's a somewhat immature way of responding. Any mature society needs to be able to, you know, address its flaws honestly. And of course it will be painful, but uh, in our case in particular, I mean, racism is so deeply tied to everything about this country's history from its very inception. You know, we had race-based chattel slavery and, um, you know, it's just built into the fabric of the constitution and, you know, all kinds of things. So if we're not talking about that, we are deluding ourselves. And so maybe now people suddenly have the space or whatever ideas and moments have converged to allow us to say, wait a minute, we have to move beyond this need or this fear of dealing with ourselves in a kind of realistic and honest way. I think another thing that's starting to enter the conversation now is really understanding, well, if we accept that our policing has been systemically racist, and frankly, we use the term police brutality, so that means that there is an element of brutality to our policing. We have to start wondering, does that exist in a vacuum, or is that part of a broader racism? 
But let's talk about systemic racism throughout the criminal justice system, because as we know, policing is just part of it. And as we know, you yourself are part of the criminal justice system, a very important part. So I had a couple of things I wanted to touch on in that regard. We saw starting around 2018, perhaps a little earlier, we saw a wave of reform-minded folks running for district attorney all across the country. We had one woman here in Boston who ran successfully, Rachel Rollins, who's the Suffolk County District Attorney. She ran on a platform of decriminalizing many lower-level nonviolent offenses, one, and she has really, since she's been in office, walking that walk. Secondarily, there was a recent offshoot, perhaps you've heard about this, I just read about it recently, an offshoot of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a new organization. It's called Black Lawyers Matter. And from the reading that I've done, the group's founders have said that given the conservative nature of many law firms out there, that many young black lawyers and law students have been reluctant to speak out for fear of jeopardizing their career prospects. The group also says that this was something I didn't know, that less than 5% of lawyers in this country are black and less than 2% of, of judges in the country are black. This group's slogan is don't fight the system, become it. And given all of that, doesn't that really add up to an entire system, an entire criminal justice system that is suffering from systemic racism? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, just to start with your last point, I think the legal profession is the least diverse um, learned profession that we have in this country. I mean, it's behind medicine, it's behind a lot of other areas uh, of professional life. We certainly, law firms compare poorly to, uh, you know, corporate uh organizations in terms of diversity. Uh, so we've been slow to change. I mean, people have worked hard and people are trying, but it's just been very slow. And it is a very conservative profession. And a lot of the reasons why it hasn't changed are rooted to an extent in understandings about what is required intellectually to be a lawyer and whether or not certain people have the firepower uh, to enter into the highest levels of the legal profession. They're unstated, but there's lots of work that's been done that demonstrates, you know, if you hand a lawyer a brief with a name that appears ethnically African American or and one that doesn't, you know, there will the, the the brief will be better received if it has a quote unquote non-black name. You know, so same writing, different name, different results. So uh, you know, that's that's an important part. So that's the top of the pyramid. Um, as far as criminal justice goes. I mean, this country has a culture that is infused with a notion of, you know, black male criminal criminality that goes way, way back. Uh, it's rooted back in slavery and the fear of black male slaves. And um, but just to make it a little more recent, 20 years ago, there was a huge movement, you know, uh, that sort of identified young black males as, you know, distinctly criminal, you know, super predators. Super predators, yeah. Right. And our own president, as we should recall, was uh, actively involved in criminalizing the young black men in the Central Park case, who were then, of course, ultimately found innocent of the charges. Um, and But it was easy for America to believe that those boys had attacked that woman, because that's what young black males do. They're predators. They're out there causing trouble and threatening you. So when you have that kind of cultural uh, kind of when something like that is baked into the culture, it's not surprising that, you know, we have school to prison pipelines that, you know, direct children of color, particularly males, into the criminal justice system and attempt to keep them there despite, you know, evidence to the contrary that they don't belong there and that that's an ineffective way of dealing with whatever problems are existing in the community. So we have to kind of unpack all of that, you know, 
decades, centuries of work to keep Black people in their place um, and to use the criminal justice system as one way of, you know, taking Black men out of society and warehousing them. Uh, And, you know, so that's, I think, in terms of some of the work we need to be doing as a society now, uh, now that we have everyone's attention, (laughs) uh, let's ask ourselves why all of these young men of color are being convicted of felonies for things that many of us don't even conceive of as crimes so that they can be put into jail and sort of out of sight, out of mind forever. It links to voting rights. I mean, there's so many questions that flow out of, or so many issues and uh, inequities that flow out of all this. And there's even, we've seen fairly recent examples of sentencing discrepancies for similar crimes. We remember back, I believe it was in the 1980s, if you used one form of cocaine, there were certain mandatory sentences. And if you used a different form, there were lighter mandatory sentences. Predominantly, the type of cocaine used by poorer black people had the longer sentences, and the type used by the more affluent white people had the shorter sentences. I guess the question I was trying to reach with Rachel Rollins and some of the more reform-minded prosecutors that we've elected recently was that this recognition of the fact that in some ways these laws are actually expanding the nature of criminality well beyond what most of us would just be sitting down and reasonably assuming was a criminal act. Right. I mean, and you're kind of incompetent. This has been going on for decades uh, in in the around drugs, for instance. You know, all of these. You know, what drugs get criminalized? What drugs don't? What what kinds of sentences are leveled for them? As you mentioned, um, look at the op- opioid crisis. Well, now it's an opioid crisis. It was a criminal problem 20 years ago when it mostly affected communities of color. And like the fact that, I mean, did anyone talk about drug treatment or you know things that those communities might benefit from in the way we're talking about it now, now that the problem is primarily in, in a rural white communities. I'm glad for the change. I mean, it was a change that needed to happen, but why didn't it occur sooner? Why was it that, you know, when an issue uh, like drugs devastates the black community, it's a criminal problem and it's a problem of people not having, you know, the necessary, you know, sort of social structures in their lives. I mean, we're always blaming the victim in the past when it was uh, something that was affecting the black community. And then when it doesn't, it's suddenly, we've got to help people. So let's do that for everyone. Let's stop racializing our uh, our compassion and start looking at everyone as in need of, you know, some human kindness when, you know, they're being devastated by things like drugs or crime. I think the question is often asked rhetorically and perhaps dishonestly. And how is racist, how is diversity a strength? What does that mean? But this is a perfect example of diversity being a strength. This idea that if we have more people of color at the higher levels of the criminal justice system, people of color and specifically black Americans, that we might have a more humane approach to criminal justice, more effective even. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, just imagine what would have happened Again, going back to the drug wars, if we had taken a different view and said we need to, you know, increase treatment, we needed we need to think about what's going on in those communities that are, you know, catching people in this, you know, uh, cycle of drug addiction. What's the desperation that's calling out for to being addressed? Now, let's say we had put those programs into place uh, 20 years ago in the inner city, when the opioid addiction problem hit the rural communities, we would have had treatments that we had tested and tried and we could have applied those those methods to the rural communities. We could have saved a lot of lives. Um, so, you know, one of the things that diversity does is, you know, brings a different set of eyes, a different set of experiences to a problem. 
and allows a voice that maybe otherwise would have never been heard or would have been silenced uh, to the table. And frankly, I think most people are people of goodwill. And if they were to actually hear that information and integrate that information, particularly from someone in authority, like the prosecutor, uh, the district attorney, they will reconsider, you know, and say, well, wait, let's think about this. This person might have something worth saying or worthwhile that could be applied to this problem. It seems like a lot of the energy, a lot of the enthusiasm right now started with our youngest people. These are the people who've been consistently out in the streets protesting, calling for change, and of course, particularly young people of color. And I feel like this has specific ramifications for us as higher ed institution, as an entire industry. I wonder whether the folks who will be coming to our universities in the years ahead may have very different priorities and a different worldview than some who've come before them. I think they will. I, mean, I think this is something that we really have to reckon with. Um, you know, I think what you're hearing from young people is, um, you know, I will not accept this privilege from white young white people. I will not expect ex- accept this privilege that's been handed to me without criticism, without assessment, and I don't want it. Uh, do not do this in my name. I do not want to be a part of a society that accepts this as valid. And then they, fortunately, you know, have grown up in a time where they have relationships with young, you know, other young people who are not from the same backgrounds, young people of color, or at least they have a sense of the humanity of their fellow young people who are of different backgrounds and they can empathize with them. I mean, that's one of the things I find really encouraging. These young people seem to have a kind of empathy for others that is, you know, really, you know, ennobling and they bring that to the streets. Um, So, you know, they're going to come to our campuses with a very different expectation about how things are supposed to work. You know, they're going to want to see uh, diversity on their campuses. They're going to want to see programs that address these problems. They want to hear from the leaders that, you know, they recognize that our society needs change and that we, as institutions of higher learning, particularly elite institutions of higher learning, have resources and influence and power that we can apply to the problem to make change happen. So our responsibilities now have increased because our constituency, our students, uh, are, I think, definitely going to want change. That brings me back, going back to Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement of the 60s. One of the things that's been interesting to me, I don't think this kind of thing can be remarked upon enough, frankly, is that it was very easy for white Americans later in the 1960s to see the images of just extreme brutality coming out of the South and from law enforcement with with tack dogs and fire hoses and all of that. And to look at that and say, that's horrific. I'm not for that. I, I don't stand for that. I stand against that. But later, Dr. King started to expand his calls for economic justice, for getting out of the war, not getting involved in the war. And some of the support fell off for him among white Americans. It's interesting to me, it seems. I'd like to ask you about the opportunity for the forum right now, bringing us back to our forum here at BC, to recognize that we're going to have to move beyond just rallying opposition to some of the worst scenes that we've seen in the streets and in our policing and really tackle some of the more fundamental foundational problems that we have here in the country with systemic racism. Well, you're absolutely right, and I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, look, racism is is a huge problem in the society, but it is connected deeply to problems of class and economic inequality and a system, an economic system that has pushed more resources to the top, more power, uh, you know, and this is not something that simply affects people of color. We have a society where, you know, 
so many people are locked out of any meaningful economic engagement. They are living hand to mouth, as we have seen with COVID. I mean, you know, I've been involved in a lot of work, uh, you know, charitable work to, to support food banks. I mean, the scenes around the country of, you know, miles and miles of cars lining up to get food in the wealthiest nation on the planet, uh, where we are, of course, dumping food into the trash and, and, you know, euthanizing livestock that we, because we can't get it to market. I mean, this is, this is unacceptable. And it is just unacceptable that this society has so deeply embraced notions of individualism and, you know, this sort of self-aggrandizing understanding of a meritocracy that, you know, once I've got mine, the rest of you don't matter. Um, and I mean, and something fundamental has changed in American life where the people who have money and who have power feel almost no or feel little obligation to share or to, um, you know, deal with the, the inequalities that the system has and that have allowed them to rise, but make it impossible for others to even get a decent piece of the pie so that they can live in modest dignity. Um, and, you know, we see it in so many ways, right, in our healthcare system and in uh, our lack of meaningful benefits for, for families, childcare, all, you know, it just, the list goes on and on. Is that really the kind of society we want to live in? Is that really what we want to uh, sort of see our economy produce? Or do we want the economy to work for the people who live in this country and who have worked hard all their lives, you know, to produce things for us so, you know, they can have a little bit, they can educate their children, they can have a decent retirement, they can be taken care of when they're ill. Okay, before we go, uh, we're also living through the COVID crisis. And as you pointed out, uh, it's had a lot of effects just for what we do here on campus. I'd just love to get a quick update. How are things looking for the fall for the law school? Um, planning in terms of the classes, anything you can shed light on there? Yeah, well, this has been <laughs> quite a ride for all of us. Um, I mean, we're working hard to come up with a plan that will allow for some, you know, some basic reopening of the law school. Uh, what makes that difficult, obviously, is that we we need guidance from the governor uh, and public health authorities to know exactly what the parameters are that we're working with in terms of how many people can be in the space at a certain time. We are at the law school, at least, in the have the advantage of not having to house people, so it's a little easier to understand how people might come and go in our context than say it might be for the undergraduate school. But uh, that being said, uh, whatever we do is going to look very, very different from what people you know knew before COVID. I mean, we are talking about you know people spaced in classrooms, very limited number of people in a class, no large classes, uh, you know, all kinds of procedures uh, outside of the classes, and a lot of people faculty and students who, for whatever reason, personal health or others, health of their, lo health of their loved ones, cannot come on campus. Uh, so people forget that there'll be a large number of faculty who will have to teach online because their health situation prevents them from coming back. And there will be students who, for similar reasons, won't attend classes. So we're going to be seeing a lot of online education next year uh, under any scenario. Thanks so much, Vince. We really appreciate your time here. It's been wonderful talking with you, as always, and I look forward to catching up with you soon. It's great to be with you. Thanks again. <laughs>